Welcome back to Your 1230, the only podcast where our guests tell their story with the help of 12 questions in just 30 minutes. I'm your host, Mike Salitro, and today we are thrilled to be speaking with Gina Mollican Long. Gina helps people get what they want. She's an international best-selling author, compelling speaker, and peak performance coach with a mission to reveal greatness in individuals, teams, and organizations. She's the co-founder of The Greatness Group, a multinational training team building, uh, national training, team building, and personal development company. Since 1998, she's trained, coached, or spoken to tens of thousands of people globally. Her books, Think or Sink, and The Secret of Successful Failing, are widely read and enjoyed by people around the world. She can show you exactly how to get out of your own way. Gina, welcome. We are really excited to be speaking with you. I am very excited to be here too. That's that's great to hear. You've got a very impressive bio. I read only about 10% of it and I could barely get through it because there's so many good things in there. But I want to start at the end, uh, helping All people right. get out of their own way. Mm-hmm. What do, What are you finding is keeping people from where they want to go or getting in their way most often? Themselves. I mean, really, it's you have to decide that you're not going to listen to the chatter in your head. And from that decision forward, you can then craft a different reality for yourself, but it really does start with the decision to want something new. So you kind of have to decide that you're going to, you have this visual in my head of this duck jumping off a cliff. It's sort of like you have to decide you're no longer satisfied with where you are and you just leap and the net will appear. Any reason it's a duck or should I, should we read into that at all? No, not at all. I, in fact, okay. it was a, just an image I ripped off the internet a while ago and it was a duck and there was a bunch of ducks standing on a cliff and one duck is like flying off the cliff. Uh, so it just jumped into my head as you asked that. Okay. That makes sense to me. Uh, anytime you can get a solid visual off the internet, you got to use that there. Right. Uh, but as you mentioned, and we'll take this back seriously, uh, understanding what's going on in our heads versus what's actually happening and how to, um, I guess, break the the line between the two or understand that what we talk about to ourselves in our head kind of affects what's going on and may distort our perspective or, or how we see things going forward. Did you find that there's a barrier from those that you work with that you're training that, A, this exists or B, okay, yeah, I know this is a problem, but I don't know what to do next. Well, you know, it it's sort of a, a meat suit phenomena. So there's, there, and by meat suit, I mean, I'm lovingly referring to our individualities. So we, we, we're embodied in a world and that world is full of stimuli, right? So we take that, that, um, we take that information in via our five senses, right? So there's visual, auditory, kinesthetic, olfactory, and gustatory, which are fancy words for smells and tastes. Then when we bring that in via our sensory perception, we recreate reality in our mind. It's sort of like a map, right? So that we kind of know where we are and we replicate the V-A-K-O-G. So the, the, the mind sort of maps reality on the inside and then it adds an additional inner monologue. Now this inner monologue in NLP, we call auditory digital, but what's important is that it doesn't exist externally. There's not some big you know, megaphone on the outside commentating like, this is how it is. And so the dialogue is personal and it's not factual. And so that's a really important thing because you, 
you you base a lot of your action on this monologue, which has nothing to do with capital R reality. The other thing that I should point out, and this was sort of um, shown empirically in the 1950s when they, you know, the computer scientists were trying to make computers and they were modeling the human brain and they could show empirically that there were millions of bits of information available in this capital R reality, but our brains could only process 126 bits a second out of millions in this little r reality. So not only do we have this non-factual voice commentating story that's not actually in capital R reality, but we're also reducing capital R reality by 99.996% as we bring it into our through our sensory perception. So it's not even reality. And then once it's inside our mind, the reduced amount with the commentary, we call that reality. And then we behave, our, our choices for behavior are constrained by that model. And then that produces our results. So, you know, maybe not that definite. Uh, it's terrifying when you describe right. it that way, because it's, it's like, well, I'm going to, I'm missing 99% of what you're telling me right now. And well, more than 99. I would argue if you took out a calculator and we did the, <laughs> and we did it, it would be like, because, because millions were in 1954. And so it's got to be billions or trillions now. There's way more information available than there was in 1954. But our brains haven't exactly evolved. So we're still in the in the magnitude of hundreds. So that's a major data loss. So how can we make up for it? Knowing that we're missing this near 100% of what's actually going on. I like the term reality with capital R. What, yeah. what can we do differently or how can we... And the one thing I you didn't mention, but came, came to my mind on top of all that, I'm thinking about this from my perspective. How do I look? How do I sound? What do I think about me? So I'm missing I, missing all of that. And then I'm it's through my own filter that I'm considering whatever else right. you're saying. So who knows what else is, is right? Being like missed. it's a miracle we can talk, right? <laughs> no, but the the thing is, I mean, now I'm going to say something uh, contrarian because that's my jam. It's actually our superpower that we can only f deal with 126 bits a second. The thing is, when was the last time you specifically set your focus on the 126 bits that would lead to your greatness? And that's the key. Right now, we're just a bunch of like, you know, la-di-da, devil may care, whatever comes in, comes in, you know, loudest voice in the room, shiniest object in the arena. And that's where our attention goes. And then that's the data that we filter but if you understand the constraint and you lean into it, there's a, there's a phrase, I've got a bunch of stuff in my office that sort of remind me of this because I forget a lot as most humans do. And one of the things I have is none but the good and the positive shall enter here. Now it's just a, a, a maxim that I have, but if you think about it and you restrict the 126 bits, like a budget, and you only focus on what you want and everything else falls away, it, it literally exits your reality. And then your choices stem from the reality you've deliberately chosen. And then those choices for behavior lead to your results. So it kind of starts at the filtering point. Okay. I, I like how you flipped that there and made us feel that it's okay. This is not only a good thing. It could be our superpower. So thank you for reframing it that way. Well, in Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, if I recall correctly, one of the main characters 
disintegrated when she tried to take in more information, right? Like, so, so we don't want to be able to take in all the information because it would be like, ah, and we'd never get anything done, right? So it's, it is a superpower, but we're not using it. And by not using it, then we are, we're sort of slave to where we're being directed by whatever, whomever, whatever is trying to get our attention for whatever purposes they're trying to get our attention for. Okay. I, I will not out myself as not having seen that movie and saying there's only three Indiana Joneses, but we're going to leave it. We'll leave that where it is. Um, one of the, one of your book titles caught me, the secret of successful failing. What, what is successful failing? So you're starting to notice this contrarian. So at failure. And in fact, I think on the back of the book cover, it says like failure isn't, isn't an F word or something like that. Um, so we have it like, oh, this is the worst possible thing that can happen. In fact, we concoct an entire society around avoiding failure, which is ridiculous. Because anytime you do something new, you're bound to fail unless you're lucky or you have like the exact map of how to get there, right? So just think of a baby learning to walk so we can like just lose the stigma around failure, right? Um, you know, you've got the desire to walk, there you are, you know, you're a baby with the right muscles and the right legs and the right neurological development, you're ready to go, but you still can't walk. So you give it a try and you plop down and you give it another try. And, and anybody who's a parent out there, you'll understand how funny this is. Like, can you imagine trying to show your kid how to walk? Like it, <laughs> it would never work. So it comes from trial and error, trial and error until you find the right sequence. And then you know how to walk. Well, in most things that we're doing that are new, we don't have the model. We don't have the sequence. We don't have the pattern. So we're likely going to fail. And our culture is conditioned. Again, this is back to that focus thing. Oh my God, I failed. That's a nightmare, right? It's like, or it's just part of the process. And successful failing is recognizing that the faster you fail, not that you would wish for failing, but the faster you fail, the faster you get a piece of feedback that allows you to feedback into the system to refine your process so that you can get what you want faster and with less effort, right? But very few people get there because they spend so much time, you know, ho-humming their failure and, and, and making up all the reasons why they suck that they don't get up and just do it again, right? There's a Chinese proverb uh, that says, you know, or maybe Japanese, correct me, I, I don't, forgive me if I get it wrong, but it's like fall down seven, get up eight, right? So just, just keep going. The only reason you're not going to get what you want is if you literally stop. And my favorite story is when somebody hits an obstacle, you know, first of all, I just like to point out to your listeners, um, you don't hit any obstacles if you're not moving. So if the goal is not to hit an obstacle or not to fail, the only way to do that is to go stand in the corner and don't move. Right. So you'll be perfectly safe and completely unfulfilled. <laughs> so the minute you step out of that comfort zone, you're likely to encounter an obstacle and People will say to me, you know, I'll say, how's that new goal going? And they'll say, oh, Gina, I hit an obstacle. And they say this, this is verbatim. I could not make this up. The universe sent me a signal. It wasn't meant to be. And I was like, what are, you what are you talking about? Can you imagine if a, if a skier hit a mogul and that was the end of their ski? Like, <laughs> you hit an obstacle. So get go around it. And, and I just try to bring the humor into it to sort of remind people the goal is not failureless because we're creating these environments for our children, which are quite alarming to me of giving everybody a purple ribbon for showing up and breathing. And we're not teaching them anything, right? Failure is part of life. And 
we've got to learn to deal with it and not from the way that like says, accept that you suck. That's not what I'm talking about. We've got to learn to fail and get up and go again. And we're not doing that right now. And so as adults, we get there and then we fear this thing of failure more than anything. And that it's not worthy of that kind of fear. It just means you didn't get what you wanted your way, in fact. So do it again till you get it. It's pretty simple. So that makes it that makes a ton of sense. And I like the way that you talk about it there. But one thing I thought of as you were describing that, that's a little a little different that I think kind of keeps people from a trying new things and be the learning from the failure is that it makes besides me being stupid or bad at something, it has a negative consequence for me. So I'm thinking kind of in a professional context, like I don't want to try something new because I have this that might happen with my organization, with my boss, sure. my team. So it's easier not to do the example. It was great that I can't hit anything if I'm not moving, that no, I won't make any mistakes if I keep it, you know, keep it safe. Don't have to worry about that. How do you how do you help people kind of see that that's pretty bad, if not worse than making making a mistake or failing? I'm not attached. See, it's not it's not a problem for me. It's only a problem if the person feels constrained by the choices that they've made. So I'm not the change police. In fact, if you're in your comfort zone and life's working, I say, keep doing it. Like if it's not broken, don't fix it. But who comes to me are the people that say, I can't live like this. Like I'm stuck in this corner or I'm stagnated or I'm in my comfort zone. And I really want that thing that's outside my reach. And I can't live like this. Those are the people that come to me. And then it's like, okay, um, the minute you step, and I don't know, is this, is this a video podcast or an audio podcast? Can they see that? They can see the boat. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So do you see these? So little, there's a little circle around the letter A. And that's your comfort zone where that's where you are right now. And everything outside the line, so you can see the word and the squiggle, is uncomfortable. So by default, by nature, the minute you step outside your comfort zone, and I and I need people to get this, you will be uncomfortable. It is the definition of the def, of the boundary of your comfort zone. So when I tell that to my clients, I'm like, look, this is not a comfortable process. If you want comfort, it's go stand in the corner and don't move. But it's a rewarding process in that you step outside your comfort zone. People say, oh, I can't do that. It's not me. I know it's not you. If it was you, you'd already have it. So we're talking about creating something that doesn't exist, which means we got to do things we've never done before to have things we've never had. So all of this is, if you just reframe that for people and just sort of say like, look, you know, it, it might be uncomfortable. You You might not enjoy it. It might... You might have feelings you've never felt before, or someone might say something to you that, that, you know, is upsetting or whatever, but all that's normal and it's not, you know, life-threatening, um, then you take the steps until you have the skills to produce the outcome. And then it's, then it's yours forever. And, and then you're operating at a different level. So, you know, it, you know, it's funny, um, in academic situations, the, the whole concept of tenured professors, right, was designed for that exactly what you said, which was to protect professors so that they would have a job even if they risked everything and put some crazy theory out there and it bombed, right? They wouldn't lose their job. They wouldn't lose their academic job. Yeah, that's how academia works right now, right? The minute someone steps out of line in any field, they get lambasted by but they don't lose their job because so we 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 kind of know this intuitively and then we forget 
And so I, I'm the kind of person that just says, you know, it's 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 not pleasant, but it is worth it. I'm going to see, I want to come back to the 10-year example because I, I want to have a question about unintended consequences I want to try to formulate. But sure. I, I love how you talk about the definition of stepping out of your comfort zone automatically means that there'll be some level of discomfort because that's very true. How, and this is a this is a lazy question on semantics, but how do you get people to be more comfortable with the uncomfortableness of something new or something different or something they have? Repetition. Yeah. Just repetition. Okay. But, you know, I don't take clients. Um, in fact, I turn away more than I work with personally. I teach anybody, obviously, in my classrooms, but my private clientele, I don't take, I, I turn away more than I take because, um, as you can imagine, I'm pretty sticky on my process. And uh, I require a burning desire, which kind of makes sense. Why would you call somebody to coach you if you didn't want it? But then I also require 100% compliance, 100% coachability, because uh, I know how to get them there, right? It's like you said, how do you get somebody to do, I don't know, 10 push-ups? Well, you start with one, and then you repeat it until they can definitively do one, then you do two. So it's the same, right? How do you get somebody who's doesn't like being uncomfortable to just be uncomfortable? Well, you just keep repeating it until it's no longer uncomfortable. And then whatever's next, you know, so you sort of train the muscle. It's, 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 it's very similar to, to exercise. You train them, you know, like you understand that in order to grow your bicep muscle, you've got to tear the muscle. Like you actually have to tear it and then the body rebuilds it stronger and tighter and bigger. And that's what's actually happening when you're doing all these, all this weight. So that sounds awful. Like when you put it that way, it's like, oh my God, I got to tear, I got to tear my muscle in order to have toned arms. Right. But that's what has to happen. The, the muscle has to tear. There's tension is required for growth. Right. But it, it doesn't mean it's bad. So judgment isn't required for growth. And that's that voice in your head. That's a good answer. It's a good answer. I'm going to switch gears a moment here. Okay. Uh, you speak to a lot of folks. You have written books. So you have, you're a storyteller one way or another. If you if you have not been called that before, I will call oh. you that. Do you have a go-to story that is kind of like, well, you know, this woman is very charismatic. She sounds like she knows what she's talking about, but it's not really hitting for me. Do you have a story that's like, bam, this this is very clear to illustrate what I'm talking about? Do I have a story? I have lots of stories, but I'm thinking of one in particular, and I'm going to need my prop for this. <laughs> so this is uh, a candle holder that I bought in Australia, but it's made out of a Banksia seed. So Banksia is a type of tree. Okay, it's like wood. So I don't know if you can really appreciate that, but it's like wood and it's got all these little holes. And it's like, a, it would have looked like a pine cone before the person turned it into this lovely candle holder. Okay. Now, interesting thing about the Banksia trees. And this is why I bought it because this is one of my stories. Because when I was in Australia, I was like, what the hell kind of trees are those? And they told me all about these trees. They grow tall, they grow small, they're bushes. They're, they're very, very diverse. When they get old, they get you know gray leaves, kind of like humans. It's really weird. And they, their seed pods are huge, right? But an interesting thing about the Banksia seed pod is that you can plant a seed pod with a little seed inside of it and it will never grow. And you can water it and you can fertilize it and put it in the soil and, blah, 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 and it'll still won't grow. 
The only thing that opens a Banksia seed pod for it to grow is a raging bushfire, which consequently is like usually the worst thing that can happen in a community, right? So this one thing that is like the worst thing possible, fire in a forest, is the only thing that unlocks the potential of this Banksia seed. And I find that to be fascinating because it can't feel good. I've never been inside a Banksia seed pod, but I'm guessing it's pretty warm and fairly uncomfortable. And then it splits open in the heat, but that there's something about the heat that catalyzes the, the, the growth of the new tree, or, or if we were gonna go with my metaphor here, the potential of what's inside the seed. So, and I'm not saying fires are good, just so we're clear, okay? We're, we're the 7 billion of us. We got to learn how to live on this planet without burning it down. But nobody would think I, I wish for a fire, right? Except the little Banksia seeds, like I need a fire or I can't reach my potential. So there's something about this idea of overcoming an adversity that we have it within us, but until it's unlocked or unleashed in some way, we don't have any idea of what our potential is. And often the adversity in your life is that fire. And, and yes, I totally appreciate that on a Wednesday, you would rather not have to deal with the fire and you would rather be running through a meadow, eating an ice cream cone or something. But the fact that you're in it, it, it doesn't mean it's a bad thing. And so it's sort of like, usually your adversity is your greatest advantage, but you have to work with it. And most people don't, they wish it away or they resist it or, or they just prevent it from happening at all or pretend they prevent it. That's a, that's an excellent story and a great visual. So thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, kind of going with that uh, speaking uh, kind of line of questioning, what is it like currently for you walking up on stage is it different than the first time were you nervous at all what was that like the first time you're up there to talk to a big group no i mean some of the things that you should probably know about me is is when i'm on a stage i disappear so i i sometimes jokingly but not so jokingly tell people that my career is really i'm just a straw for information and it goes through me it's not mine i didn't make it up and it's not about me although i wear nice clothes so, you know so that there's something nice to look at, but I'm really clear that it's not about me and I'm not nervous because it's not about me. Um, but I also, I, I also am quite trained to know how to let information flow without getting in the way of it. And, um, there's a technique I could probably teach it right now that I do use and I teach. So we teach a very intensive presentation training in the form of NLP trainers training, um, very intensive. It'll make you one of the best speakers in the world. And one of the things we teach is a technique that comes from the ancient Hawaiian practice of Huna, which the warriors used to use before they had to go do insane things like walk on fire and, you know, put arrows through their chest and stuff like that. And it's a, it's a, we teach it as a form of, we call it the um, stage fright eraser, which, because, you know, I know that public speaking is the number one fear on the planet. I don't understand it, but I, I know this fact. And so if you do this, you won't be able to feel fear. Now, that doesn't mean um, it will go away forever. But in the moment that you stand on the stage, 
you won't be able to feel fear because you're going to do two things with your nervous system and you can't do three, right? So you can do the two things I'm going to teach you. And then the fear has to disappear because you can't also focus on something else, which is what's causing the fear in the first place. So the way you would do it on a stage is standing in the center of the stage. You just walk out to the center of the stage and you look as far across the room as you can, just slightly above eye level. So, you know, if you were wearing eyeglasses, it would sort of be like that angle, just slightly. So you don't look weird. You just look like you're looking off in the distance and you pin your attention on the back wall, all of your attention, like a laser. Once all of your attention is pinned on the back wall, this takes approximately 10 seconds. You open your peripheral vision at the same time. So now what you're doing is what we call foveal vision or focused vision and peripheral vision, which are two diametrically opposed actions. If you open your peripheral vision while focusing on the back wall, that's that's it. Your nervous system cannot do anything more than that. That's called a neurological paradox. So now fear will disappear because you can't focus on whatever. And then you leave your awareness in the peripheral and then you bring your eyes back to the audience or whatever your notes or whatever your eyes should be on and you start talking. And anytime you lose your train of thought or get your feel the fear, do this, do it again. And this is what it looks like. So you don't look like you're doing anything and it really is effective. And I've taught little kids how to do this. And now it's not magic. So if you stop being present to your peripheral vision and your audience and go in your head, which is by the way, where the fear originates, it'll come right back. So but you're in control of you. So as long as you're present, and this is what I'm talking about, I disappear on a stage. And this is the truth. So sometimes people will say to me, what was that thing you said when you were talking to us? And I'll be like, I have literally no idea. Sometimes I'm like, I'm on the periphery going, oh, good one, Gina. That was pretty cool. But most of the time I'm just flowing it. And I, capital I, am not there. I mean, I'm still there, but it's weird. I don't know how to explain it. So no, I was born doing this probably before born. Okay. That's uh, excellent advice and a good yeah, way for all of us I mean, to conquer fear. Like racer. Yeah. It works in meetings. It works before phone calls, before you have to fire somebody, you know, asking someone out on a date. It works pretty much anytime you're in your head fearful. So we've got a lot of great advice, a lot of actionable things that we can start doing. What do you do when you are not helping others? How do you relax? How do you how do you unwind or how do you get away from your what, what, when you are not uh, kind of making this real for other people? I like sunshine. So I seek the sun. Um, so I'll sit outside, walk outside, swim outside, whatever. I, I, I really am. I get very grumpy when it rains too often. So I used to live in Vancouver a long time ago. It didn't last long, maybe about 10 years. Um, because there was too much rain and I like the sun and I like to read. I read like a crazy person. Um, so I've got like, a, you know, if I leaned over my desk right now, I could pick up three books I'm reading right now. I just read all the time. Um, and I like to read and I like to laugh. Right. So I like to, I like to watch funny things. If someone shows me a hilarious dog wearing a costume, I, I like that. Right. I do. I love to laugh. I, and I, I really, um, and I love to spend time with my family, my dog. I'm, you know, it's pretty simple. All those sound like good things. I am going to ask outside of the dog in the hilarious costume, what's the last thing that made you laugh? You can remember. 
Oh God. Um, I, my sister and I are quite close and she lives nearby. So pretty much um, any story of anything that we share together, we, we kind of build off of each other. So it could be actually something. So she showed me, this is why I thought of it, a video of this dog wearing a costume. So the dog was in the costume, but the costume made it look like the dog was carrying scissors. Uh, it was ridiculous. It was one of these optical illusions. And this person, and like, I, we probably laugh for like, I don't know, an hour over a 10, <laughs> like, honestly, because we just kept watching it. And we're like, this is, I was trying to figure out, like, could I buy this kind of costume for my dog? Because I was getting so much joy out of the ridiculous illusion um, that was this dog. So that was the last thing I laughed at. Okay, that's a good answer. Yeah. And we are already somehow at time. So I will just ask, I think we've covered a good amount of ground, but is there anything I didn't ask you that I probably should have, Jeannie? No, I think the only thing I would want to say that you didn't ask me was because I, I believe that anything is possible. And, and I want to be clear here because um, I didn't say everything was probable. So in quantum physics, anything is possible, but not everything is probable. So, but I hold that any reality is technically possible. And so the only two things you need to change anything in your life is a burning desire to change it and a willingness to give whatever it takes. Sure. Some things that are way far-fetched are going to take more, right? But most people want something that someone else has already achieved. And all you've got to do is be willing to do whatever they did in body, mind, and soul, right? So you have to believe what they believe, do what they did, you know, give up the beliefs they didn't have, so on and so forth. So anything is possible. And I know it sounds Pollyanna, but it's not. I'm a very pragmatic realist. I have a degree in engineering and a degree in philosophy. and I. I really do think anything's possible if you have desire and willingness. And so for anybody out there that wants to do something that's never been done before, you have to have a lot of willingness. And anybody who wants to do something that's been done before, you just have to follow the instructions. It's pretty much it. That's an excellent, excellent place to leave uh, desire and willingness. That's that, that, that's it, especially when there's that blueprint. So Gina, where can our listeners find you or connect with you to, if they want to learn more or uh, get to find out what's next? I'm all over the place. And so I think the best way to find me is to go to my link tree. And so that's linktr.ee slash Gina Mollicone, G-I-N-A-M-O-L-L-I-C-O-N-E, because that'll have all my social links. So that way, if you're a TikTok person, you can hit the TikTok. If you're a LinkedIn person, you can hit the LinkedIn. It'll also have any webinars we're giving away right now or any latest and greatest. And that way, whenever you listen to this, it'll be current. And it'll take you to our websites if you want, if you're a website person. It's sort of the the, the post, it's the central point. Perfect. Central so we, point. We'll be sure to post that in the show notes. Gina, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. 